0: Welcome to episode 16 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hey
1: there, Steve.
0: The idea behind this podcast is to unearth demo recordings and speak with the people involved in their creation. And the hope from the outset was that this common experience amongst musicians would lead us into rich and diverse conversations with people. This conversation, Ben, with Ed Percival, is a perfect example of that idea, don't you think?
1: Oh, it really is. I mean, who could have predicted the twists and turns that Ed's story is going to take when you come to this episode? It really was. Um, yeah, it was a fantastic journey, wasn't it?
0: It was. And Ed paints such vivid pictures of his experiences kicking off with Count Lorenzo's caravan.
1: <laughs> it was brilliant. It was just such a great start. And when he first mentioned that and then the description of it, oh, it's, it. it was priceless
0: it was and there was a little moment when he was talking about them recording or rehearsing sorry in in the caravan um uh which it, it's not too much of a sort of a spoiler but there was a lovely visual moment where he was describing how cramped they were and the cymbal was right next to his ear and, and he held his hand up <laughs> he did. To, to, to 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 mime the uh the, the the position of the symbol right next to it is ear in the yeah. caravan and I love that and it's yeah awesome yeah
1: how do you crowbar a prog rock band into a into a caravan because we were oh I don't know about you but I was picturing one of the t- the small really tiny little caravan eh? oh yeah you know <laughs> <laughs> fabulous
0: yeah oh there were so many points at which we could have stopped Ed to delve deeper into some of his experiences but before that could happen he'd recount something else and would be on to another amazing recollection.
1: It was I mean kind of uh, it was very much a sort of exercise in how people managed to push themselves, step outside their own expectations, the kind of normal parameters. And, um, and even Ed seemed to have surprised himself at many, many points about his ability to uh, to step into the center stage,
0: eh yeah surprise is the theme of the podcast <laughs> yeah <laughs> surprises <laughs> for ed himself and the listener and for us during the conversation we have um, we
1: we've been so lucky haven't we to happen across um the people that we've been talking to you know such varied and and different but equally brilliant stories and storytellers amongst them eh
0: yeah it's a, it's a good point to make because the guests for the show for the most part are not people that we've heavily researched and sought out, um, for, for specific reasons it's been about, um, people who are engaged with their music in a way that looks like they'd be interesting to talk to. Um, or they've said, they've said something in a Facebook post or in in a, on a Twitter feed that sort of resonates And And, but beyond that, it's like, okay, well, let's, let's see where that conversation goes so you're right we have been really really fortunate um and the world of the tribute band comes up again in this conversation but and unlike the one with in episode 12 with jason where it was sort of a logical progression you could see the through line ed's well his first alter ego it's really not
1: (laughs) yeah Uh, you you cannot predict that one at all it was just um uh, well, obviously, we'd had the biog, so we we partly knew what we were coming to, didn't we? Into yeah. some respects, but when it when it arrived, the moment was just—it was such a peach, it was fantastic, and then and then it just got better and better, didn't it?
0: It's <laughs> a brilliant conversation, and yeah, and and the stories that relate just purely to that experience, uh, and and the thing, the the sort of places that that uh, involvement with that project, where that took Ed. <laughs> it's just it's great and he has a real affection for it as well doesn't he
1: he does he does indeed yeah and I think the um you know the this whole theme around uh connections and stories that's been sort of coalescing and coming together throughout the making of these podcasts and it really reminded me listening to the episode today and thinking about some of the more recent episodes it took me back to what um what uh, Paul Breston Mills was saying about this the notion of narrative and story importance of stories, you know, and it's he well, I think in the episode he said something about in times of trouble, people gather around the fire and they share their stories. Um, and I think um that's something so special in the sharing of the stories, and it feels like it's really really coming across that we've had we've been so fortunate to have these opportunities and this insight into people's real people's real experiences
0: yeah 100 percent, totally totally right um well i recommend checking out ed's work i was really impressed with fossil fools not to give an, again too much of a tease away or a spoiler away as to what's coming up um but there are links to all of this stuff in in the show notes and it's definitely worth exploring that some more ed is a as you'll see a very very talented musician involved with some really interesting stuff and now next week is a milestone in the uh, Songs from a Padded Envelope uh, history because we're recording two episodes in one day. Yeah. Kind of, <laughs> <we're> <laughs> two very different uh, people, um, including, well, I think I think we're on safe ground calling him a British rock legend, perhaps.
1: I think uh, yeah, we can go with that.
0: We can go with that. And, and our first uh, uh, MBE guest for one of them, and then, and then somebody altogether different for our second one, but equally fascinating, and uh, I'm excited about both of them in oh, one day. So that's going to be good.
1: It is going to be some day, and both super exciting conversations. Um, the prospect of them, and in and in vastly different ways. Hey, um, I can't I can't imagine that it's going to be anything less than brilliant speaking to those two individuals.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, speaking of brilliant individuals. This is episode 16 of Songs from a Padded Envelope with Ed Percival.
2: Okay, I'm Ed Percival. Uh, And once upon a time, 37 years ago, I was in a band called Airbridge. And the song you're going to be hearing is a song called Tin Drum, uh, which was recorded, um, yes, in the summer of 83 when we were young and foolish. (laughs) And This demo sort of sits in the middle of your years with Airbridge, is that right? It's sort of at the end of it so it's a um airbridge was was a band that went on and on uh well no it, was a, it on and on for about two years of my <laughs> my youth and um it, it, we can go into all the all bands fall apart and everything else and we did all of that stuff and at the end of it we had a very brief moment where we had uh we had found an absolutely amazing guitarist jeff chamberlain uh, and persuaded him to join the band um as our founder and lead singer and main songwriter had left uh, and we had one rehearsal in our caravan and we used to rehearse in a caravan which was in the, on the uh, lorenzo's estate um he was a count uh genuinely uh, and uh he uh and, and we had one rehearsal with our keyboard player stephen bennett who went on to be um he still plays with no man and uh has actually done proper music around the place. And we had one rehearsal. I thought, finally I've got a fi- the five piece rock band. I can be the lead singer and we've got the great guitarist, great keyboard player, great drummer, fabulous bass player. It lasted one rehearsal. Uh and then so uh and Steve said, well, I'm not, not gonna do prog anymore. He's been doing it for the last 30 years, of course. Um but that was um you no know, so we we're doing little bits of demos and we had a whole week of um, recording in the back room of my parents' house when they were on holiday. And then we did three proper demos later, and one of which is, is Tin Drum. Uh, and we lasted about six months more before we split up.
1: So if we go back to, there's, there's so much within that...
2: starting conversation
1: to to kind of to get into and i think we've got we've got a long conversation ahead of us which is oh dear god right okay if if you take (laughs) us back to the beginnings of airbridge and count lorenzo so can you can you tell us a bit about um how that band came about and how you got involved with airbridge
2: okay well i i I stumbled across and i'd finished a degree in architecture at bristol uh, and while I was there, I'd been in a student production of Tommy the musical, and I'd played the the rock the musical the rock opera, and i played guitar, uh, and I was a fairly adequate guitarist at best, not a never a, a flashy one at all. Um, and I'd uh, I graduated in 1981. We had another recession, like we have to seem to have regularly, and there wasn't a lot of call for opportunities for people to go and get jobs. Um, and I went to a uh, an old school friend had a sort of a jam session going so i went along to that um in fact that was with steve bennett the keyboard player i'll, uh, I'll mention later Um, and then we had another one which had a completely different set of people including this guy lorenzo uh, and i was hugely impressed because he had a thing called a wasp synthesizer now i don't know if you've ever come across a wasp synthesizer but it's like a uh, it's like a printed keyboard. Nothing, nothing moves, and lots of yellow on it, and lots of knobs, and you can do all that stuff, and and put oscillators out of tune. And somebody who's never had a chance to play with a synthesizer, I thought, oh my god, this is brilliant! I'm there with my Les Paul copy guitar and 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 my uh, crappy old HH amp, and I'm just sort of oh yeah, oh I love this. <laughs> <laughs> and Lorenzo was trying to get people to learn this long complicated piece and but he hadn't written down any chords so i was sort of saying a minor e minor and and i it, we ended up having a chat at the end of it and uh, i gave him a lift home we both lived out in the wilds of norfolk so this was in a pub in norwich uh, and we both lived about 10 miles out he was on a different uh, kind of spur spur road, so i get gave him a lift home and he said well do you want to join a band i said yeah yeah i'd love to join a band so i've got the band airbridge and we've just lost our um, bass player. So Sean, our singer, is going to be our bass player. Um, but I'd really love somebody to come along and play um, play some guitar and keyboards. Now, this is me bluffing. The first time I've touched a keyboard is me going <laughs> on this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've got to be a part of this. Um, so I gave him a lift home. And then um, a couple of weeks later, I met the other guy. So, and, and they had this wonderful setup. So Lorenzo is uh, part Italian. Uh, and somehow he is a count by, there apparently are lots of Italian counts. Um, and his uncle lived in this fabulous um, Tudor hall right out in the wilds of Norfolk. And his um, his his mother lived in a cottage to this. And in the grounds of this cottage, uh, somehow the banded water caravan um, shoved it in there, attached el- electricity to it, uh, and torn out everything that was in there um but it was had the advantage we could practice all the time and we did um with nobody being disturbed by the noise because we were amongst the trees so it's a very creepy sort of place um when it when it got cold nights it would freeze in there as i discovered when i left my precious um gold masquerader 12 string guitar in there one night and I came back tomorrow and uh, came up the day later and the whole finish of it had cracked off in one night so it was just sort of practice. It's, apparently they have a very, very notoriously um, delicate um, uh, finish on them but no it's, it, so that we would we'd practice and we were sort of crammed into this caravan and if you imagine uh, it's a prog rock band so we've got a drummer with kind of five toms across here and symbols all over the place. And, uh, and Dave's, Dave's, one of them, Dave's symbols who used to be next to my ear, so I was sort of crammed in a corner, the fourth person in the band. So I was sort of crammed in a corner with my amp sort of over there, sort of here with it, shh. So I, I, I'm, I'm now, I have no high frequency hearing in my right ear, which I put down to rehearsing. We probably rehearsed four nights a week hours upon hours upon end and we would just um so it, we i think my first gig was in within about three weeks of playing with the band and we used to um there was a pub called whites in norwich which was a great music venue uh, and we would just um we'd turn up there and people gradually came and saw us um, and very quickly uh, lorenzo was very encouraging about well you know, write some songs and i thought well i can write some songs so I, I just started writing things. Initially, it sounded like Pink Floyd. Then it sounded like everybody else. But it just seemed to sort of flow. And we had a really good um, atmosphere between the four of us and this sort of little following of people that would, 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 um, would come out to see us.
0: Thinking back to that time, uh, it, um, to fall into something that was such a good... For you and you were such a good fit for them how, how does it feel looking back on
2: that now because that's quite a precious thing isn't it i hadn't didn't realize how precious it was um and you know the the wonderful is the as the years pass, you go oh my god it was so wonderful we had the time you know it seemed to be a, an endless time we could get the only person who worked in the band was the drummer dave the rest of us really had did fuck all with our time um, and i would uh, i did i was doing a little bit of sort of building building work helping my brother convert her house um but it was just ma- just magical to be sort of so focused in you know i was I grew up wanting to be a rock star and here i was trying to be a rock star and i been there spent 2 years very solidly trying to do that and um, and you you love it and um when you when you've done it for a bit when you realize um that you have that creativity within you and then you stop doing it for a while, which is what I did. I stopped for 20 years. You And you suddenly rediscover it. You go, oh, my God, that's where I used to be. That's me. That's my, that's what I was meant to be doing, not,
1: you know, 20 other things. So um, the descriptions that you've given, there just conjure up some really beautiful images. And I've got this. Picture of you in this tiny, tiny caravan on the counts estate. It just sounds absolutely magnificent. Have you got? Have you got pictures from that time as well? We,
2: yeah, we have. If you look on Facebook, there's a, um, there's a couple of Facebook Airbridge places. I, I, I said I started one, and then the guys who reformed Airbridge a bit later started another one. But mine is just full of old photographs. So we've got pictures of us photographed in front of this hall. You know, leaping around in the air and doing all the, the things, <laughs> and and in the 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 latter period of, of things, I'll, I should probably I shouldn't preempt the story, but uh, when a band develops, um, sometimes you you end up forcing members into the, of the band to do things that that are against their will, <laughs> um, and um, and that's kind of what happened in our our place. So you will find photographs which show one of the members of the band just dressed in a in a in a hooded cowl with his head, you know, just like this ghostly figure with a black cowl with a a guitar. And that was, that was Lorenzo in the end, end of his time with, with Average.
0: You, well, you said that you were wanted to be a, you had um, dreams to be a rock star. Were, was everybody else as ambitious? Were you collectively oh, ambitious yeah. and, pu- and pushing, you know, that, that
2: dream and those ambitions? We were, and I, I, and and I'm not quite sure why. Um, you we, the best musician in the band was Dave, our drummer, who was who was a really special drummer. He could really do all that stuff. Um, and the rest of us were sort of making it up. Lorenzo um, was very very creative. He, he was just endlessly writing songs. And uh, eventually, it was a, most of us saying, "No, no, don't like that. No, 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 that one like that was like that one. Don't do that one. Here's one of Ed's, and here's one of Ed's, and that." so you have creative tension and uh, at the time it it felt it, it seemed awful but actually having two people both fighting with a vision for songs is really fucking creative because you don't you you want to get your chance oh here's my right here's my song and then, and then oh no here's my song and that's and that's wonderful and i always thought that all i needed to do was to buy my porter studio and be away from people to fight with, and then the songs would flow. And then, of course, the songs stopped because you need that creative tension sometimes. Mm, for sure.
1: And so had you written songs before Airbridge, or is this your first kind of um, venture into that?
2: My first venture into it, my, my first song was called Love Amongst the Haystacks because I was looking at a, a set of books on my brother's bookshelf, uh, and he used to live in a barn, uh, and I used to go and across then trying to play the guitar in his in his barn and he had all these set of books thought, oh love amongst that haystacks so that sounds like a song title and by god was it a shit song anyway i did it and we performed it once and uh, I, halfway through its first performance in this pub i'm going i fucking hate this song I don't know what I've done here. <laughs> whatever gave it this is the first time i've sung in public and i'm singing this shit song <laughs> And then, so that one that one didn't last long. Then, almost immediately, I think a, a month after I've been in the band, I, I I went on holiday for a couple of weeks to uh, to Italy. I hitchhiked right around Italy with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, my very long suffering wife. Uh, and I wrote. Uh, there's a place called San Gimignano, which is a fabulous place in Tuscany, with with uh, where people uh, competed to build the tallest tower in the town. So it's this it's this hill town just full of amazing. Rickety Towers, and I wrote this song about people living in tower blocks and jumping out of windows and things, which was enormously Pink floyd And I brought that back, and, um, and they sort of fought with that for a while, but we never ever played that one live. Um, and then my next attempt was um, Sean, the bass player, had written uh, a whole lot of um, squiggly lyrics that were all over the place, and I sort, kind of took them, and um, I've never sometimes i think i'm a better editor than i'm a creator so having a set of words to attack and kind of stretch apart and it had this fling a bridge in the air in the middle of the song i kind of tore it apart and uh, and restructured that and that became my first sort of proper song which was it taking sean's lyrics and my music and that became the title track to our debut lp and so paradise moves a bridge in the air was the was what he'd called he'd um He'd written that, and then almost immediately, I then started writing shorter and poppier songs, which were not really the things you should be doing when you're trying to be in a prog band. You know, they want longer songs, and I'm going, oh, "Actually, no, I quite like that shorter I mean, <laughs> verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, verse, chorus, end." Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> um, so I did did a fair a fair number of those sorts of songs, and then latterly got got into more and more complicated things with time signatures so ridiculous that. Um, dave could play them, our drummer then and since then i've never found a drummer who can work out what the hell time signature they're meant to be and certainly i can't program them you know so i, I sit with these songs and i can't do anything with that wow wow Sorry.
0: um you were talking before about going out and playing 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 songs live how um how busy were you as
2: a live band i think i think in the two years um we did about 80 gigs um so if you're up in rural norfolk there are there are very few, few places to play. So I think we played this place, White's, about a dozen times. We played a place in Ipswich called Duke's Tavern about a dozen times. And I'm never sure quite why we were there, because nobody ever bloody listened to us, but they brought us back over and over again. And we'd play um, here, there, and everywhere, desperately trying to get support. Eventually, I, I, you know, at our, our peak, we got to play the marquee um, three times when I was in the band. Um, and that's that's kind of the the peak of our of our gigging days with Airbridge, and it's you know it's really special to you know you see the marquee and all those signs of you know pictures of here's a great singer on the marquee stage. And well, I did that. Yeah, I've got a picture of me doing that on that stage, and that's really that's a fabulous memory to have.
1: Can you still take Can you still take yourself back
2: to that time stepping onto that stage? Um, I can, and I think the. Um, it's, it is that uh, that strange thing of when you've not been, if you're not a particularly forceful personality in uh, in life, when you suddenly discover that uh, you can stand on the middle of the stage and people will look at you and listen to you, it's quite scary. But it, And it's it's a huge, huge addiction when you say, oh my God, I can be in the middle and people will, will look at me. And I, you know, having started as the sideman of the band, I was pushed to the front to be the front man of the band and then became the megalomaniac of the band, you know, is the way of all things go. But you never forget that power. Uh, and in fact, I, um, you know, I said I, I didn't play for 20 years. I, uh, when I turned 40, I, uh, I, I thought, I thought oh, I've really got to join a band again. And uh, um, and I went to a New Year's Eve party, Millennium Night, and I woke up, and I found Slade tattooed across my knuckles, <laughs> and I had no real idea how they, how it got there. Thankfully, it was a henna tattoo, but I was and I was sort of scrubbing at this thing. But they don't go away, so I was ending wearing foundation on my knuckles to go and do my my job. And at the time, I was quite a senior marketeer with Compaq. At the time, you know, not a you know in the computer world, people don't have Slade tattooed across their knuckles, and. Um, and then about three months later in the music shop in Windsor, when we had such a thing, there was a sign on the door that said, uh, Slade tribute band seeks bass player. And I thought, well, I've not played the bass. I'll have go with that. We did one gig with the bass player and I became Noddy Holder, which I did for about 10 years. And uh, this, this strange thing of because Noddy Holder, he holds the attention. And to suddenly discover that I still had that power in me to stand in the middle of a, ta- a, a, a stage and pretend to be a, a shouty bloke from from the midlands is incredible and i did that with 2000 people going like, oh my god and i remember particularly an out of body experience saying thinking to myself what the fuck are you doing you are you're a 45 year old bloke and you've got 2000 people out there and you say get you into the air and they do <laughs> so so that's you know the power of never power never leaves you but you know the things i wish i'd known Better when I was in my early twenties. I I am fascinated
0: about making that move to being, Noddy Holder in a in a Slade, Slade tribute band, and uh, how much. Of, uh, <laughs> I mean, I think I, I feel like we need to stay with that for a second because it <laughs> it's it's remarkable. Is there's no choices there. No, not really. Um, how much preparation
2: did you put into that initially? Because that feels into being noddy holder yeah oh my god it that became obsessional so some people have midlife crisis and go and leave their wives and buy sports cars i didn't i just i just screwed over my career and became noddy holder for 5 years well you know 5 years seriously and still 5 years dribbling on um but no i think we uh, we did one gig in a in a, a village hall out in the wilds of oxfordshire um and had great reaction including the um, there was somebody off the telly that was in, in the at the gig, and the crowd reaction was wonderful. But our Noddy at the time said, "Well, that's brilliant, but I want um, three quarters of the money because I'm the star." And the guy said, "Nope, you're not. You're out." And they handed me a picture of my head stuck on his mirrored hat and <laughs> sideburns because <laughs> I'd been I did a bit of backing vocals and I can shout a bit so. Um, so I became Noddy, and and it was lovely because Noddy Wilder was my hero when I was thirteen. He that was my wow. that's the, my first album. Well, I bought two albums on the same day: Slade Alive and mm. uh, Aladdin Sane. Uh, and those were kind of Bowie's, is, you know, early Bowie is still a huge uh, attraction of mine. But Noddy, you know, that uh, Slade Alive is a brilliant album. It's one of the great al- live albums, and I knew all the you know the grunts and the sweats and the all the stuff that goes with it. If I could sing like Noddy Holder, I would, of course, made a great career in an ACDC tribute band mm-hmm. um, because um, nobody really wants to hear a Slade tribute band apart from at Christmas. So even though they had 22 top 20 hits, um, way more than everybody else, people used to kind of call it, fall into the lazy category of, oh, it's the Christmas song, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And you could play, you know, earn lots of money at Christmas and the rest of the time you're really schlepping around, having to play gigs in... Newcastle, uh, Lincolnshire, always getting in a van on a Friday night after a week's work. Where are we going now? Oh, we're going to Lincolnshire. All right. Sweaty van, you know, it's all sort of hours. So we did travel all around, all doing it. I used to regularly sort of pop my vocal cords because you're shouting um, so much, but now I love the, love the music and the songs and, and love the, the, the chance to escape and be somebody else for a while.
1: When you inhabit the persona of Noddy Holder for sort of five, ten years, did you sort of start to assume part of his personality?
2: <laughs> yes, but only, only when you put the mirrored hat on. Can I do a, a Birmingham accent? No, I can't. But put the mirrored hat on and the sideburns. And I, I did it at one stage, growth sideburns. Um, uh, and at various other stages, I had glue-on ones that you go there. But I remember we used to me and um, Rick, the, the drummer of that, Whose band it really was. Um, used to go shopping in Camden, you know, in Camden Market. There used to be all these mm-hmm. secondhand clothes shops, and we'd always be on the. T- can we find some some Noddy gear or, or Slade gear? There? And the uh, and <laughs> and Rick did it actually genuinely. did come from uh, from uh, from Birmingham. There was I remember there was one particular golden day we went in there and found a perfect pair of tartan stay pressed trousers, which were kind of three quarter length. Hanging next to a yellow shirt, and he said,
3: "Ed, Ed, we got the trousers." <laughs>
2: <laughs> and and, we, and we, got a, we got a pair of we've had a pair of platform shoes, and they weren't quite tall enough. So Rick got uh, like Geppetto got uh, attached great lumps of wood to the bottom of it <laughs> with bolts, um, so that it was like kind of a Frankenstein monster with these kind of platforms on it. But once you once you inhabit and just if you're prepared to make enough of a tit to yourself. Wearing the clothes, and we were very authentic. We didn't. We we every every outfit was modeled on something that Noddy wore. I, I had guitars, the right guitars, the right sort of amplifiers. I even do you remember the Super Yob guitar? The Dave Hill had a sort of a guitar. In the oh shape yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yes. yeah, yeah. I made one of those. <laughs> uh, and I've never built a guitar in my life, but I built that one. Wow. And and you and you you get caught up in this whole obsessional world of. Of trying to be the best, uh, best look. We looked really, really did look the part. Um, I can't say that we sounded the part, but people enjoyed it. So, did uh, did um, any of the members of Slade see you play? I uh, never saw us play. We we met uh, Dave um, Don Powell and Dave Dave Hill a couple of times, and they in fact signed my super job.
0: Oh, brilliant. And
2: and uh, the first time we met. Um, um, Don Powell, had a photograph of me as Noddy and he, and he, and he was going, one of my proudest moments,
3: Dave, Dave, he looks just like Nod! <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it, it was, it you know, it was lovely and we had a, we had a great time doing that, but I think the last thing they wanted to do was have anybody else uh, doing it. And, and it used to, they they had their way of, they made money at Christmas and they, in fact, we played some venues, drew a crowd and then they the venue would then hire the proper Slade to come and play. So it was kind of Every time we looked like we were going to get anywhere where we'd make money, they would kind of come along and hoover it up, as it as they should do. And and, and tribute bands are a horrible thing. I can't believe I got involved in them. <laughs> we should have original <laughs> bands, but it was in you know, a midlife crisis.
1: So did you re- you eventually retired the um, Flaming Slade?
2: We we retired Flaming Slade, and uh, um, and uh, uh, we still did, at the same time as I joined the Slade thing, I then got involved in the Next DC tribute. So completely different end of the spectrum. So Slade people will come 100 yards down their road to see you. Uh, it, for the XTC tribute, you put on a gig in Swindon and people will fly there from America, Israel, Australia. We pulled audiences incredible gigs. Uh, you know, you pulled two, 300 people who are absolutely passionate XTC fans because they couldn't see XTC songs. And it's a completely different spectrum of difficulty and everything else. So... Uh, but it, it, that wasn't a looky-likey van, that was trying to sound and capture the spirit of X XDC. So that's a very different sort of mechanism. So I so I I got sort of bored with sitting in transit vans, sweating, um, it, and and gave up that side of it, but and we stopped XDC for a bit. Um and then after kind of another five-year break, we started another XDC tribute, and out of that um uh, that band which is is Fossil Falls, which still sort of goes on. I said, um oh, no, I'm I'm you know, fifty-five, I shouldn't be um being tributes anymore. I'm going to stop doing it tributes. And I'd really like to go back to some of the songs that I wrote when I was twenty-three and write some more. So I have a, a brief sort of late flowering of writing again. And I have my little studio now and we Melatrononism, which is an easy easy band name to say and deliberately obscure because it's, it's, you know, it's a mixture of Mellotrons and wanking, you know, which is all about <laughs> middle-aged men and, and prog rock. And uh, well, it was, it, I started doing it because I, I picked up a, a copy of Prog magazine in an airport, it opened it up and it says, and there was a where are, they, where are they now section. It said, where are they now, Airbridge? I thought, wow. this is pretty, pretty amazing. Nobody's fucking heard of us, but we're in this magazine as where are they now? And I wasn't where they said I was. <laughs> so, so I thought I need to put that right. So I, I wrote them in a letter. So I'm, I'm still alive, and uh, I'm writing new songs, and I will have things released. And eventually, we we did a little EP um, a little while ago, um, and we have played um, here there, largely to complete um, silence. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it feels very special to actually play your own stuff, um, and I still reluctantly go out and do. XDC because it is just such that such fabulous gigs when we get the chance to do them.
1: What do you think it is about? Because um, it is a common thing for musicians to do. What do you think it is that appeals to, to musicians about revisiting early works from their from their writing career?
2: Well, it, 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 find a musician who writes any decent song after they pass thirty. It seems to so it, it, the 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 talent seems to leave people. Uh, I mean, there are, there are notable exceptions if you take someone like neil finn who can, seems to be able to you know churn out incredible quality of work but you take something like Andy partridge he hasn't really written anything um since he turned 40 um you say go back to where where it was where it was natural and people could could come up with an idea if you you know it's quite difficult to finish off an idea if you've got all right that that sounds good well, it could be it could be better. And you end up going round and round and round and round in circles without putting out an end product. So the discipline of here's a gig, oh we got a gig in two weeks' time, right. Therefore we ought to have a new song. Right, I'm going to finish off a song. Therefore, that song is going to get finished off and this is the way it's going to go. So um, you know, we had the creative tension and the gigs and things back in the in the early eighties. Um and it's a slightly different version of it now. But you I, I think you need to kind of need that too. If you're a great procrastinator, which I am,
0: when you were, it's going back to those the 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 early recordings. Then, when you were um, with Airbridge initially, how quickly was it that the band got signed?
2: It seemed to get. It came out of a we we signed publishing rights with um, um, Paul Rodriguez, who was I think he might have been Lorenzo's brother-in-law. He this is a guy who was vaguely in the, um, the music industry and had one time, one time been a bass player in a band with David Bowie in. So back in the early days, one of those sorts of you know, David Bowie with, with short blonde hair and in, in, in suits and things. Um, and we signed, signed our songs away. Um, and through that, we seemed to get a, an agreement that this, this blues label, red lightning records, uh, would put out an album. So oh we must record an album and we god bless us i think there was the thing that um police's first album was recorded for 1500 quid well ours was recorded for 150 and it sounds like it a bit yeah. <laughs> and we 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 were full of you know uh, vim and vigor we raced down we had we hired a london uh, a studio just off carnaby street for one day um and it was guy uh, guy no owned by a guy who was in manfred man and i think he might have written handbags and glad rags I can't, mike harg i think it was his name uh, and we hired this studio and we in in one eight hour session recorded all the backing tracks for the album wow <laughs> all the ba- bass uh, bass drums and most of my guitar stuff is is that thing and b- or bits of keyboards um it wasn't i don't think we tuned to anything uh and i don't think um it was so sort of rudimentary into quite a lot of things with first takes and then we took away that that mixed roughly down to stereo um and then lorenzo stuck it on a on a head of a, a real to reel, his sister in his sister had a an eight track uh real to real uh, recording thing and he then sat for about a week overdubbing things on it he would not sleep, so we would sort of go off and for a walk, and come back. And he'd he'd put a million overdubs on this thing, so this this our, our our precious songs were kind of overdubbed to within an inch of our life. Um. Uh, and uh, and and he kind of finished it off, and uh, and you know vocals were all one take things, but we had this album, um, and uh, and this went off to the record company, so this was. Very beginning of 1982. Uh, this is before Marillion have put an album out. This is before uh, uh, Palace have put an album out. So there's kind of this whole bedrock of new new wave of progressive rock bands. And we were the first album, for, you know, one of the very first to record an album, rudimentary though it was. But it then didn't come out for a year. So it was really frustrating of being something at, at the start of a scene. And then we end up being followers. And by the time it comes out, we moved on. Um, and it's it's hugely frustrating when you get that, you know, big, wonderful piece of vinyl in your hand mm. and you go, well, actually, it's a bit disappointing. This is not how I pictured it would be. Um, I think I, I designed the the album cover, the front cover of the album, and the, that took me far longer than my recorded contributions on the album. And that's kind of the wrong way around, I think. Um, and we did, there were a couple of tracks which we, did get back to? We went and re-recorded, uh, but there was a whole trunk of of the last track on the album, which we had a we we had this wonderful song of Lorenzo's called Pen With, which was all about. It, it's frank. It is frankly, um, uh, what's that? Um, oh God! Uh, the standing stones in in the middle of the countryside, in you know the big one, Stonehenge. 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 This is basically a Stonehenge. Here Beneath With Standing Stones Beats Life. And it's all about Cornish stones and things. And it was a fabulous song, but Lorenzo didn't like what he'd done with it. So he stuck a demo thing that he'd done with somebody in a kind of a drum machine going doo-doo, doo-doo on it on the end of our our album. going, fucking hell, Lorenzo. You've put this other stuff on the end of our album. And we'd recorded other demos between that and by the time. The album came out. Came out, and it was just kind of it's kind of disappointment, kind of saying, "Well, I've I've got an album. I'm on there. I'm proud to have done it, but I really wanted to do it better."
1: It sounds like a really really difficult process to go through for you to to go and do those initial sessions. You must have been pretty pretty hot and prepped as a band to go and do that recording like that.
2: Well, because we were we were playing live a lot and we were rehearsing four nights a week, so you do get pretty tight. But then I mean, to have
1: good. to have one of your band members go and. <laughs> Turn it into something that sounds like it was unrecognizable to the rest of
2: you. It, yes, it was. It, it had moved. It, it had moved quite a long way away from what we were expecting, and that that sort of led to some of this sort of um, tension between the the three of us. So me, me, Sean, and Dave, and Lorenzo, because he he was pouring out a lot of stuff. But they the other guys were actually liking the stuff that was coming out of what I was writing, which is a little bit more mainstream. Uh, a bit more accessible, um, and uh, and a bit more varied in the uh, in 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 the structure of it, and and the song "Tin Drum," which will come along at the end, is I think it's it's, it's a it's a decent prog rock, rock song because it's got some some interesting ideas behind it, and it's got some moving bits of um, chord sequences and a decent guitar tell on it. It's a good, it's a good song, I think. I'm still very proud of it, um, and I'm not so proud of the stuff that we did on on the. On the album, as as, as the uh, thing went on, we then recorded a single uh, on our own label, um, which was um, Lorenzo's song on one side uh, and my song "Words and Pictures" on the other side, which was the A side of it. and um, And that was that was much more satisfying. We had a whole day to do two songs rather than um, trying to do it all. In you know, this, everything was very rushed in in what we did, but that that felt much more exciting we got to hear that i think it was on a tommy vance played it once i think um and uh it was a desert island disc so strangely you know the the one single that i uh, no there's a second single i'll tell you about in a minute uh the one the one single that i was was on uh, was chosen as a desert island disc so we were um, who, one night, who chose? Who chose your song? There, there was an author called Malcolm Bradbury who. Oh right, uh, wow. wrote yeah. a book called The History Man. The History Man, um, yeah. and uh, he was from from Norwich, and uh, one of his sons was one of our roadies for a bit, and they went on a world tour launching a book, and he took our single with him, and he used it used this as a sort of an, an introduction to all the interviews that he did, and he said he came back and he said Well, no, I'm, and it was his final choice. This is my. Uh I'm choosing the song because of um this reminds me of my son, the good times I have with my son. Oh. And that's rather special when you've got, yeah, you can, indeed because you can look at it and, can, and, and it's Roy Plumley, so don't <laughs> think about your final torture. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's that's a bit of that's a little bit of history. There's not many six sixty year old men in Windsor who got a, a, a written a design and disc. I wrote it, you know, I sang I played the, guitar, the guitar that's quite special, it? Yes, it is. Yes, it
0: definitely
2: is. Um, Shall I tell you about my single disappointment then? Yes, please so, do. Yeah. So one day I was um, I was, having done nodding for a bit and jacked my job in, which is a rather dangerous thing to do. I got a call one morning saying, uh, uh, would you like to do a, uh, a session? At, um, yes. And they said, it's, uh, I think it's 400 quid. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it, whatever it is. And they said, well, can you come along to Rack Studios? So, at Rack Studios, which is Mickey Most's Studio, uh, the second most famous studio in St John's Wood, uh, and I got there, and this is in this room, and I'd been, really, oh my God, this is where, this is where Led Zeppelin recorded, this is where McCart is recorded in this room, and I got into this beautiful, huge studio, and there's a microphone standing in the middle of it. Oh, no. Just before I got there, they said, "Oh, can you sign this? Sign this? I don't want my sign. said, Oh, you're signing away all your rights. We you, just, uh, you're signing away." Uh, yes, fine. Here's the four hundred quid. Yep. Yeah. and I got into the middle of this uh, recording studio, and there's the guy behind the desk. And he said, "I said, well, what do you want me to do?" He said, "Can you go? It's Christmas." Because I was a naughty holiday impersonator, so I've been hired to go. It's Christmas, and I, I did this a couple of times. I said, "Is there a backing track? Is there something that I'm supposed to respond to? To, to... what's the mood of it? Is there?" Uh, he said. Uh, uh, I said oh, well I've got I've got the thing can you play the um, play the thing in the background so I, and I'll get it so I can't get the same pictures in but I'll get this the right length of it or the right intonation of it so it's as close as possible and I did this a few times and I said go on who's this for and they said you don't want to know I said, what I do, why do you, I do not know said, uh, they said it will probably go to number one okay no, no you've got to tell me who this is and they said it's the Crazy Frog. Oh. So my voice is the first one on the Crazy Frogs, um, the third single. He's got two mm-hmm. two number one singles, two number fucking one singles, hell, and then Whoa. fucking hell, I'm on a cra- cra- crazy. I am naughty voice of Naughty Holder on a Crazy Frog, <laughs> frog single. I, kept I did not see earlier. that coming. <laughs> it, it, went, it went to number five. it did go to number one in New Zealand. So I have appeared on a number one selling single <laughs> in New Zealand. Excellent. <laughs> and you can never visit there. <laughs> never visit there. I'll let you in. Of course, I'm not credited on the thing you can't see my name because I've signed away all my rights. And You know, a million uh, um, mobile phone downloads. You know, there'll probably be some serious money in there somewhere. It didn't get to me, but 400 quid was very important to me at that point. I remember there was a review of it on the uh, – somebody wrote a review of Christmas singles and they said, Somebody said, "Can't believe how low Noddy Holder has stooped."
1: <laughs> <laughs> great.
2: So, so uh, yeah. So A-Bridge, great band. <laughs> uh, and we got so we got so we, we, we this creative tension. We had this wonderful guitarist. We had some great songs. We were playing really uh, wonderful stuff. We got to play at the at the Marquee, the first Marquee gig we did um, when Lorenzo was still in the band and Steve Bennett, the keyboard player. Um, and we supported um, IQ, I think it might have been. Um, we certainly supported them a couple of times. Uh, and we did the gig, and um, we played our, we support gig. Now, you don't get an encore, it's a support act. Um, but and, and we went went off, and the uh, stage manager came and said, well, you know, you've got to come out and do an encore. I'm, I'm getting an encore. The on- so we raced back out. So we, I I, I mentioned the guy in the cowl, so Um, we had an image problem as a band. Um, with somebody described it as looking like a cross between Hawkwind, Duran Duran, um, Haircut 100, and and somebody who did the cleaning. Um, and (laughs) and, uh, so we so we derived this cunning plan that Lorenzo would wear this this monk's cowl and would be completely hidden, it was just his his telecaster. Um, you know, and this shadowy figure. Which looked quite menacing, you know, with the right lighting on it. Uh, and we we paid this thing, and it really looked cool. Anyway, we'd, we'd, um, we we'd you'd better come out and do it on course. So we raced back out. Of course, Lorenzo forgot to put his um his uh, cowl back on, so he raced back out in I think a tur- turquoise short and corduroys. Uh, and uh, and <laughs> somebody and <laughs> said it's nice for you to bring the cleaner on at the end. <laughs> <laughs> so we had this 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 sort of thing going back and forth, uh, but. You know, we were serious about it. Three of us really wanted to make it work. We thought, well, the only way we can do it is to move from Norfolk to London. Uh, and Lorenzo said, well, I'm not going to do that. And we said, okay, well, we're moving to London. Um, and we did, and we we found this guitarist, Jeff, and we moved to London. And um, in the best one in the world, London is a big place, and we would never, we didn't have that connection. We weren't rehearsing three or four nights a week. We did some gigs around the place, but the whole sort of spirit went out of it. We played... Um, a couple of times at the marquee in the in november of that year included and we said well this is okay we well, let's make this our last gig um and uh and we had a you know terrific send off um a really good gig we sounded really brilliant um but that was it and we we just stopped then and a couple of guys went on and, and formed this other band La Host, but it was kind of all finished by the end of 83 and I got a job and went off and did other things as you do in life. But you really you know, that moment of saying, Okay, I played a game. I played gigs at the marquee, a Desert Island disc, you know, this is this is great.
1: It's a it's a pretty drastic thing to have to do, to have to walk away from a band and walk away from music, Ed. So what was it that prompted you to do that, to to start making
2: music? Well I think it, it um, I probably um um, stuck a banner in the work. So there's a band called Twelfth Night that was around at the time. I don't know if you heard of them. They 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 were sort of uh, really at the front. They were ahead of Marillion. People like Stephen Wilson used to go along and see them. Uh, and they were they did they had um, their kind of set of stuff. And they had a great singer, uh, Jeff Mann, who kind of at their peak, just as they're getting signed, I think to Virgin. I said, well, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm, I'm giving up. So they advertised for a lead singer. And I thought, oh, well, I'll do that. So I went along and auditioned uh, for them in about October, 83. And apparently I got, I got down to the last three. I didn't realize. It's only when I read their biography, I, th- I discovered that I'd been actually quite close to getting in because they weren't very communicative. Lot all I, le- all I learned was, well, you didn't get it. Not that you were quite close to getting it. Um, and they went off and they they did. A proper album, and and fizzled on for a bit, a bit longer. They played Reading Festival main stage and all that sort of stuff. Think, oh right, okay, well that in an alternative world, I'd have got my audition better, and I'd have gone on and do, done that, and I'd, uh, I'd work. worked. But you know, at the time, you know, we were living in a, a little flat in, in the, the arse end of Croydon, um, and I needed money, and and you end up going up and doing up doing a proper job. What um,
0: did you do to work? Uh sort of satisfy your
2: creative side of your personality during those well, years because well I bought I bought myself a Porter studio I bought myself uh better and better instruments and they sat and gathered dust basically because the you know the inspiration the fight is is gone out of it and I and I bought a bass I thought oh I'll audition I'm going to be a bass player with somebody but it just never really happened and you know life life goes on and you you do, do other stuff and you you have a nice life, and you get married, and you have kids, um, and then suddenly you wake up at forty, going, My well, boy am I boring?" Um, <laughs> which, which is what I did, and, and you know, I turned forty, and music is now really solidly a part of my life. So it, it's lovely to rediscover it, but I sometimes think, "Oh my god, all those time, all that energy, all that creative lust that I had in my twenties, I wish I could, um, you know, have, have, have done that." differently you know if i have a regret it's that i didn't try harder to 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 reconnect with that stuff because you know it's you never get that chance again so you know so so listening to you know Dindrum is right in that heart of that little optimistic bloke who's saying i don't want to grow up I, I, i'd rather be dead and all that stuff that's that's my little voice there talking about then about you know how the world is going to be and i'm not dead and i'm quite happy and i'm I have a wonderful life and a lovely, lovely house and a lovely family and all those lovely things. And very occasionally, I go out and shout at people on stage, and it's lovely. Do you know what
1: what trying hard, what doing, what doing things differently, what that would have constituted?
2: No, if I'd known what it was, I'd have uh, (laughs) gone out and done it. uh, You don't know what it. it, it, The what was the, the the prog rock bit was you know this little. It was its little scene, but it was a tiny little thing. And and, I mean, Marillion have sort of done quite well um, playing that same furrow for years. Um, And a few others have sort of, you know, of of late. I was quite surprised to discover this whole um, prog thing happening. And and, I had never heard of Stephen Wilson or Porcupine Tree until two, three years ago. And and to discover that there are, you know, real proper uh, musical geniuses out there producing music that I love is wonderful. So it, to rediscover music like that, it's wonderful. And then to be able, to, well, I've actually got this body of songs that you know, nobody's really heard. Um, they need they need an airing. So I, I'm I've got some of our backroom demos from the band just playing in the in the back of my parents' house, and we had mic'd everything up, and we ran it down our multi-core into our mixing desk, and our roadie, you know, taped it onto onto cassette tape. And I've got some recordings, and and I still listen and think. Well, there's some bloody good songs in there that, you know, when it's, when the sun the sun stops shining this year, I will sit down and and tidy them up and and uh, see what I can do with them and, and release them to silence. But at least I'll finish them off.
0: Are there, is there a, a a kind of hardcore of Airbridge fans and people that have followed your music that 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 you'd be releasing them to, and that
2: people are you know kind of awaiting that stuff? I doubt Well, I don't know. So Lorenzo um, and Sean uh, about 10 years ago uh, suddenly uh, popped up and said they were releasing an EP and they did a a launch that and I went along to that that launch and joined them to sing the song that I talked about, Paradise Moves, um, for the encore, just to sort of go along and show support. Um, And all the members that had been in the band all turned up for that thing in a little basement pub. In, in Norwich and there was, there was you know, 50 people there and it, but it was a really nice atmosphere to do that and then they uh, and in fact our roadie from years ago had become um, a guitarist singer and drummer with this with this uh, lineup and then they played another gig about a year later and I went and they well I thought tell will what I'll come, can I do a support set to you and I went up and I just me and the acoustic guitar and I played all these songs that I hadn't played for had to relearn them after 17 years. I thought, well, I'm, this will force me into the discipline of learning to play this song again. And I really enjoyed it. I thought, well, this is, this feels strangely authentic compared to being Doddy Holder or Randy Partridge and things to actually say, well, I've got these songs and so I'm going to play them. Um, and yeah, you know, we've probably done only about 20 gigs as melatoninism. Um, and, you know, largely to not a lot of reaction, um, but it still feels more special because it's, you know, when you get applause, well, that's genuine applause for my songs, not for that song that we love by somebody else. And those
0: connections are really important, aren't they? You know, and connecting with your former self, your your younger self, but also the connection with those, with those bandmates that you've had these formative experiences with.
2: It, it is. And, I, I, you know, sadly I'd, I'd fallen out with, uh, Sean hadn't taken my, um going off and auditioning for 12th night thing very well so he and i didn't speak for well really for 35 years um dave the drummer who i was always close to we would we had bumped into each other a couple of times and you know we just get on like a house on fire and lorenzo hadn't hadn't spoken to for years um and then just recently in the last last couple of months um I know Lorenzo's put out another, done a couple of solo things and he said, Oh, do you want to c- collaborate on something? So we, you know, we, I've got my MacBook and my fancy microphone and things. So we've, we have tried sending I- musical ideas back and forth with each other and we're fighting just like we always did do. You know, we, somebody sends an idea back and it's changed out of all um, recognition <laughs> from one was the idea five minutes ago. Um, so we haven't quite, nothing's come out of that yet. And I know he's, He's he's doing releasing another Airbridge album, um, um. So we maybe we'll do something out of that. But I, I've got my own version of, of Airbridge, Airbridge's second album, which is uh, sitting there to to be finished. In fact, there's so much. There are two, uh, two solid album lengths worth of, of songs that the world hasn't heard, apart from those people that saw the gigs at the time, or the the two or three things that we've got we've had in the. Melotronism set. So there's there's videos out there of a song called Stage Struck, which I wrote specifically to open airbridge gigs, and we always use it to open the Melotronism gigs. And uh, the song Drum that you'll hear at the end is part of Melotronism set. So, um, and that's you know, that's nice to to have this song to come back to. And it's so God, it's so much easier remembering your own songs than trying to remember. I think in in one period. When I was nodding and XTCing and to make ends meet, we were also being tributes to everybody under the sun. There was one one year in which I played 172 songs live during the course of the year. Hundred and seventy-two songs. I wrote them listened down, and therefore had to remember the lyrics to 172 songs. I think that's quite yeah, remarkable. Yeah,
1: that's a that's an incredible that's thing. immense.
2: I can't yeah. remember anybody's name, and frequently I'll have a conversation and They'll put two words together, and I finish the lyric off because that's what my brain is doing. It's full of the lyric, song lyrics, but uh,
0: uh, uh, and they're not straightforward pieces of music, especially the XTC stuff. You know, there's there's a, there's a lot going on in those songs, and it's some inc- I mean incredible songwriting as well. It's
2: that the, Andy XTC is the music that I go back to, um, and I loved it for years as a listener, and I thought I'd never be able to play it. And when I joined the XTC tribute band. Uh, we had three guitarists. So I was the third best guitarist. So they said, we, uh, so I said, okay, I'll play the bass. Um, and then I discovered that Colin Moulding is the like the, be- the best bass player in the world, <laughs> the most complicated bass line. So I had all this, do all this, this. So I listened and relearned XTC, listening solely to the bass. And I thought, oh my God, there is so much richness in it. Um, and XTC, you know, it keeps on giving, you listen to it again in a different way. and, and, unravels itself um, then in a subsequent XTC tribute band I, I sing and play guitar far more so i'm now listening to the song and decoding it um as a, as a singer guitarist and then in the latest version i thing i've actually been playing keyboards as well so i've been going back and learning trying to learn how barry andrews is doing keyboards so it's just, so each time you're you're revisiting that same piece of music and and it's sort of oh my god if you focus on that and it it's all this other stuff going on it, and it's you know absolutely. Um, I I can't believe that XDC aren't more successful because they are just endlessly fascinating to me.
1: I think your your journey, your musical journey, is so spectacular, Ed.
2: Um... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a leg- I'm a legend in my own lunchtime. <laughs> a master of mediocrity, you know. Never was a, uh, never will be a. But you know, well, you know, number one single in New Zealand, Des Island. An album where I spent more time on the artwork than I spent um, uh, contributing the music to it, and played to two thousand people as Noddy. I've done. I've done, switched on the Christmas lights in rugby. I've you know there are odd things that you end up doing in life. That have nothing to do with. <laughs> wait 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 wait. You switched on the Christmas lights <laughs> in rugby uh, as who? As Noddy. As Brilliant. Uh, that's what I was to do? Oh God! I, I, they were. There were some fruitful things. I got hired one Christmas because they bring out the Slade Christmas single every year, and there was a, a brand called Nobby's Nuts. Remember Nobby's Nuts? Indeed. Yeah. And, yeah. and they hired Noddy Holder to do their advertising. Nobby's Nuts! <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and and clearly there was um, the 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 limits of how much they'd pay him for that. So I ended up being hired to go to to to, to Leeds, to stand in Asda's. Um, head office reception, because uh, they had an exclusive on the release of Christmas, Slade's Christmas single. You know, for like the 30th <laughs> year running, and in a, in a joint promotion with Nobby's Nuts. <laughs> so I'm standing there in the middle, of it, and, and Asna has a reputation of being the kind of the meanest bastard buyers. I used to be a supermarket buyer in one of my careers, but Asda, you know, is fearsomely horrible. And this week before Christmas, though, there's all these ashen-faced suppliers coming in to negotiate with buyers. And they're coming through the, the door of Asda's head office and there's me dressed as Noddy. <laughs> <laughs>
3: you know? I
2: played it once and there's all these people banging on the window. Shut the fuck up! Another 400 quid and a trip somewhere else to do a bit of nodding. But it's, it's, it's lovely to have done these things.
0: Uh, it definitely is, and it's really lovely to hear about them as well. Um, the, ah, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely love the idea of you switching on the Christmas
2: lights in rugby. Is not holder. There is oh, no- We've the- done it in uh, in Wolverhampton. Oh, wow! That, that's a that's a that's a big gig. We played this, um they put us on this big external stage. You know, closest thing to a festival that I've ever played. Um, on this this big external stage in this in this town. And it was about 10 degrees below freezing. So we are like,
3: fuck it, Come
2: on, you're the
3: feet and your toes.
2: (laughs) So cold.
0: Um, I wanted to... uh, I did have a question pop in my head about the XTC uh, tribute stuff. He was talking about fans flying in from around the world to come and see you Mm. play. How... um, how generous were those fans when it came to you know because I'm because XTC don't play anymore, yeah. so it's a it's actually quite a special thing to see if, like a good XTC tribute band pulling
2: those. So are they are they the fans generous to you? They they are. It is ridiculous. So we what we did happened to code note called uh, um, but to get. I think the internet is brilliant about connecting obsessions and people with the obsessions about things, and so. Slade is actually doesn't really exist very much on the internet. It's not doesn't fit that sort of demographic of people who fell for that. XTC uh, appeals to people who connect with this stuff, and they're an odd mismatch bunch of people around the world. But they love the songs, and they're obsessed by they ne- I never saw XTC live. I never saw Slade live. You know, my two greatest obsessions, and um, to to be at the, at the heart of a a gathering of people that are joined by this absolute love of the songs It's so incredible, such an incredible experience. Every gig we did, the first XTC tribute band, we essentially did not get on at all, but we were we were all in it. We met on the internet saying we're going to do this thing because there's got to be an XTC tribute band, and we got together and we we played eight gigs over two years and fought every step of the way. The first gig we did with we did at the Hope and Anchor in 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 uh, in Islington and nobody had heard of us and we said well, we're just gonna put this gig on. Um and half an hour before we started the place was absolutely rammed People were trying to watch the gig from the stairs through a glass window. Wow. And you go oh my god there there is genuinely this 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 huge passion out there for, for the band. And uh no you know beautifully you know a couple of years ago Colin Moulding and Terry Chambers uh, got together and did half a dozen gigs in in Swindon. Um and I went to three of them plus plus a warm-up. And the lovely thing is I get I've got to meet my musical hero. So I've met every member of XTC apart from Andy Partridge, who um has at least tweeted something nice once. Um, but they all know me as Ed. Huh. You know, for years for years I was tribute I knew all their children because the kids would come along and see me. And I was known as Tribute Dad in the Moulding Bat. Oh, yes. He's his Tribute Dad. And I met his wife. And I met the, you know, and then eventually to actually finally meet the heroes. And actually, they're just lovely, lovely guys. But they, hi, Ed. Dave Gregory says, hi, Ed, how are you doing? You know, and it's lovely. That song, You know, I've become a a little legend to a few few people in in this crazy world. Just because I've been prepared to do it. I'm not the greatest singer. I'm not the greatest guitarist. Um, i fully admit to i haven't really i don't really get the nuances of all the the things in the chords, but i've gone on and done it and um and that's an important thing just sometimes um music is is just going out and doing it and uh, uh we shouldn't need tribute bands we should just have original bands uh, but x d c deserves a tribute band and they deserve to be the best band in the world so i just go out and do that for the love of it,
0: yeah. Uh, well, that feels like a really nice point to wrap wrap up on. We do have a we do have an occasional feature called Ben's final tangential question, which is right. uh, which I don't know if we, if there's going to be an episode of that tonight.
1: I don't, I don't think so. I don't I think, think so, mate.
0: I think I think I've thrown you
2: enough tangential questions already. Yeah, where could that go? I mean, and, look,
1: I, and I, have, I haven't clicked my pen lid once as well, mate.
0: <laughs> That's true. You haven't. There's still time. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, well, just just before I ask you to cue your song up, Ed. Um, all this conversation of of uh prog uh i it, i am
2: obliged to ask you if you are a Cardiacs fan um i had never heard the Cardiacs or heard of the Cardiacs. so this the strange thing about lockdown and this this um mad world is discovering people that are already dead um they did there was one thing there was an artist called judy sill who didn't hasn't just died but the andy partridge is a huge fan of and i'd never heard of or heard um and i've started listening to her during lockdown thinking oh my Mm. god this is really great incredible yeah we share that one discovery so uh another one was um fountains of Wayne. so that their singer dies and and yeah and I you know I remember I had Stacey's mum somewhere on my iPod and things, and you know, I've got about know, seven thousand songs on my iPod. And that's I thought, well, people are very keen on him. I'm going to listen to it, and I listened to it all these and They go, fuck me, they're brilliant! What a band! And I've missed out on the <laughs> unbelievable <laughs> and, songwriters. And, and he's there. Yeah, uh, I think I did, I did try and listen to a bit of Kydex. I thought, well, uh, I'm not getting this. I know he was sort of floating around. Um, Shortly after we, we'd finished, so is that sort of he's been around from the, those early days. But apparently Stephen Wilson was around and at lots of gigs. So um, you know, perhaps Stephen Wilson saw, Wilson saw me perform live. Um, who knows? Yeah, I met yeah. India. I did meet him the other day, and I shook him warmly by the hand, and he gave me a filthy look. And uh, <laughs> <for that> thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never meet heroes. I did meet Dave. Well, no, Holton. People that I have met goes on for another three hours. so I'll stop that. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, in that case, can we? Oh, thank
0: you so much, Ed. What a it's yeah, been lovely Ed. spending and spending this hour with you and hearing. God, what a rich, diverse range well, of stories! It's just absolutely brilliant.
2: Thank you so much. Um, well, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. No, to no, let me wrap it on. So, my, uh, my wife's bored with the story, so it's nice to some, tell them to somebody else. <laughs>
0: uh, can we just finish off with you introducing the song that folks are going to hear
2: now, please? Okay, the, the the song you're going to hear is "Tin Drum" by Airbridge, um, and uh, it's based on a book by Gunter Grass, which I thoroughly recommend that you read. It' one of the best books ever written, uh, and there's a a, uh, a very spooky German German language film of it. You should go and watch as well because it's uh, just a a spookily um, powerful central performance by the by this young lad, uh, and the story behind it is is somebody who. Um, is growing up as the uh, the Nazis um, come to power uh, and he refuses to grow up as a statement to try and stop the madness of the world behind him so he the world grows around him but he stays precisely as he as he is a three-year-old drummer um, and that's a really powerful image that somebody can make that decision so that that inspired me to write this song um, and on the, the drums you'll hear David Beckett on the uh you'll hear Sean Godfrey on the guitar is um, Sean Chamberlain. And on the vocals and I can't even remember if I had some keyboards on that is me Ed Percival. Uh, the laughing bit in the middle we, with the tin drum is a biscuit tin. And uh, the person laughing is Sean. Um, and we love the song. We sent it out in padded envelopes and it, it, it drew a resounding silence. Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Ed.